I wanted to do a lesson on the subject of forgiveness, not not like the ones that we've done in the recent past about forgiving each other and whether we should forgive whether someone's repented or not, not not that at all. But the fact that I think that forgiveness is one of the reasons why people don't become a Christian or have struggle when they become a Christian. And that is because I I think that they, I just don't think they believe in the forgiveness of God or what that means. I'm not sure that we have a way to sometimes, because of our culture, we don't have a way really to comprehend the, the depth and the beauty of God's act, act of forgiveness upon us. So I want to talk about that. I, well, I want to preach about something along that line. And you can see by the way I struggled to formulate that why well, I wasn't ready to talk about that exactly this week. And as I began to rework on that, I realized, no, that those thoughts are not really incubated enough yet from what I have in my own mind about it to do that. So I want to start backwards a little bit, start ahead of this stuff, because we have to go back here anyway. Where I'm, where I'm going to start today, we have to go there anyway if we're going to understand what I want to say in a week or so about this subject. And that's the idea of knowing when you're lost in the first place. I'm not sure in our modern culture whether we really have much of a capacity to understand the idea of being lost. I don't think that people in the general culture have any way to put this idea of being lost. You know, I got this thing on my keys while they're down there, so at least I know where they are. Some of you don't know where your keys are right now, but I know where mine are because I can see them right there. But one of the kids got me that little one of those little tags you put on there on stuff. I don't know why in the world they thought I needed that, but I I stuck one on my TV remote and I stuck one on my keychain. I think I've used it once, but probably because I know it's there, I haven't lost them. The definition of lost for lost keys would be, if you look it up, is something like temporarily misplaced. That's the idea. Well, I don't think when the Bible says uses the word lost, when I talk about being lost outside of Christ, I'm not using the word temporarily misplaced. That's not how I'm using it. I'm using it as lost as in not having a clue. Lost as in having no idea what real direction to go. Lost as in hopeless. That's the idea that I have in mind. Something like that. And we can go through the Bible and look at some of those words. And we may hear in, in a week or two to look at what that is. But how important is this idea of being lost? Well, I think it's critical. And because our modern society has no real way to deal with this. I think that's one of the reasons in a sort of back back doorway why Christianity has faded so much from our culture. Because until you understand the idea of lost and can comprehend being lost, you have no need at all for Christianity. It doesn't make any sense to you. It seems like an antiquated mythology. It just doesn't have any meaning. But once you understand the idea of being lost and can comprehend that personally, now Christianity becomes the central thing in your life. And that's where we see it in these characters in the Bible, many of them. And yet we also see in the time, we're going to see this morning, among the Pharisees and Sadducees, the elite people of Jesus' day, much like the elite people in our society, in Washington, New York, San Francisco, etc., the idea of being lost is completely lost on them because they don't need anything. They have it all. And so the elite people of our society don't need it. 
They don't know what it means. There's no capacity for that. And they teach our children this when we send them off to school. And when they educate, not, and I don't mean send them off to school, send them to college. I mean when you take them to kindergarten or preschool today, they're being told and, and everything they're taught that there's no need for being understanding that you're lost. Because you're human. You have it all. You have all the potential. You can be what you want to be. You can dream what you want to dream. Do whatever you want to do. And nothing can stand in your way. Except religion, of course. But anyway, let, let's start in the Bible. How important is the idea of being lost? Well, look at what Jesus says to that wee little man, Zacchaeus. You know, children, you sung that song about a wee little man up in a tree, Zacchaeus. Well, he was a very short fellow, a tax collector, not a very prominent, not a very loved part of that society. Kind of like saying I'm an IRS agent. The only thing today worse than an IRS agent is an armed IRS agent, which we have many more of, thousands more of now than we did a couple years ago. But we don't really like IRS agents very much and auditors in that way. And that's the way Zacchaeus only worked, much worse. He was a traitor to his nation. But he wanted to hear about Christ. So he climbed up in a tree to see if he could see Jesus. And Jesus knew this and he stopped and told Zacchaeus that today salvation has come to your house. I want to dine with you. And there in Zacchaeus' presence, he says this in Luke 19. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house. Who, who, who just came to this house? He did. That's what he meant. I've come to your house. This is salvation. Because he, that is Zacchaeus, is also a son of Abraham. He may be a publican to you, but he's God's child. He's a son of Abraham. He's in. He's part of the God's covenant, and I'm going to save him for that reason. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. This is probably the simplest statement of why Jesus came to the earth as the Word, as the Son of God. This is the, probably the simplest and most direct statement of that in the New Testament for you to remember. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. So when Jesus, in his own personal ministry, and then later through the Holy Spirit and his apostles, he sent the Word out into the world, he said, when I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. The only way men know about that is through the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word. When this word goes forth into the world, it will draw men to me and I can seek them that way and I will save them when they come to me. This is purpose. So in our culture and the elite people of our society try to say in many, many ways that they do that you're not lost. You're, you just may be misguided. You need some psychotherapy, some, some drugs to clear up your mind. Xanax, Adderall, whatever drugs they're pushing on you, that this is this will help, this will save you. They don't know what they're talking about. Jesus Christ said, I'm the one who's going to save. Now I want to go back and take another running start at this by looking at two other things at the beginning of the lesson here. Truth and freedom. I know this sounds like the beginning of a Superman movie. Truth, freedom, and the American way. We're going to leave off the American way a little bit and talk about truth and freedom. Big subjects. Jesus speaks about those subjects, though, in the Bible, very clearly. And they have something to do with being lost. Because people do not understand truth, and because they don't understand truth, they can't be free. Jesus had a discussion. Well, it's all through the book of John, but in chapters 8 and 9 in particular, he is discussing, he's having a running battle over a period of time with the Pharisees and Sadducees about who he is. Interspersed in this are a couple of miracles which we're going to talk about briefly. 
But this is about truth and who they were. It was about the identity of the Pharisees and Sadducees or even the Jewish people. And it's also about Jesus' identity. And when Jesus told them that if they followed him, they could be free, they objected to this. They said, we are Abraham's descendants and we have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you'll be made free? You almost, you almost want to laugh at this, really. You really want to almost laugh at this. How blind can these men who are the leaders of Israel be? They were in bondage to the Romans at that very moment. They were under the thumb of the Romans and they hated it. You'll see a little bit even later in this very book of John, how they were protesting being under the Romans' thumb, and they were afraid Christ was going to make it worse. But they tell Jesus, we've never been in bondage to any man. What do you think the Babylonian captivity was all about, or the Assyrian captivity, or the Roman domination was about? They're so self-deceived, so deluded as who they are. And so in modern man today, because of whatever he perceives his advantages are of education and enlightenment over those around him, when he says he's not in bondage to anyone, he's free, he's deluded. We are in bondage. You're in bondage. Some of you are really in bondage when you are completely controlled and addicted to drugs and intoxication and pornography and various other forms of things that grab a hold of your heart and mind don't make you free. You're in bondage to covetousness. You're in bondage to what your peers say about you on Instagram or or whatever it may be and what they say, how many likes you get today for something you post. You're in bondage to that because you cannot possibly break away from it and it controls how you think. Jesus said in verse 34, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And he goes on to say, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but the son abides forever. You're slaves. You're slaves, I think he means not only to the Romans, you're slaves to your own passions, your own desires. And these Pharisees were eaten up by greed and covetousness and pride. It was keeping them in bondage. That's why they refused to listen to him. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. You shall be free indeed if the Son makes you free. We want this idea of freedom. What's been pushed since the uh, 1500s, 1600s in Western society. Slowly but surely, the philosophers and leaders have pushed the idea that man is an autonomous being. There's nothing above man. There's no angels. There's no God. There's nothing above man that controls him. No gods of any kind. That man is a completely autonomous being and he can be free to do whatever he wants. Even in our age, strangely enough, as we've learned more about the forces of the universe and the forces of our own, of our own genetics, that determine much about our own behavior. Even there, these philosophers have contended that man is able through technology to rise above that. Are, have we? No. Man is bound in some ways. He's restricted by the fact that he's a human being. Human nature restricts him. This is what's going on today with all this battle over sexuality, homosexuality, and transgenderism. The ba- it's a real simple battle. Is man free to be whatever he wants 
wants or or are there any constraints to his because of his nature that constrain him in his behavior? Are we even constrained by our biology and the genetic code to be a certain way if we don't want to be that way? The idea now is what's being pushed onto your children very openly by Disney and everybody else is that no biology doesn't constrain you at all. You can just use your imagination and be whatever you want to be. Nothing constrains you. You're free. Is that right? Is that true? Not true at all. And you know it's not true. So yes, we are constrained. We are constrained by our biology, but we can still be free. Jesus says if the Son makes you free, you're free. So it's possible for a man or a woman in Christ to be constrained by their own biology, you being a man or a woman or tall or short or whatever it may be, and yet they can still be free. And it's possible that same man or woman, tall or short, male or female, to be in bondage because they refuse to let the Son make them free. And so it, what Jesus is saying here is when he says, the truth shall make you free. I don't think I can put that up there. He says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. This kind of almost become a mantra of mine in my own brain that I try to see the importance of more and more as time goes by. The truth shall make you free. There was a discussion on a Facebook group I'm on for preachers. You know, it's for a bunch of old fuddy-duddies. And and uh, one of the guys was making some, quoted some other old preacher about the fact that um, when you divide the Bible up in verses, that constrains our understanding of it, and we should learn to just ignore all the verses, verse marking, and somehow that putting the Bible in verses and chapters is a bad thing. Well, that's kind of ridiculous. Yes, the verses were put in there by humans. They're just representing sentences usually. They don't mean anything per se, and yes, you should read before and after and get the context of things. But it is possible, and I, naturally the rebel in me pointed this out, it is possible truth stands on its own. What is true can stand by itself. It stands by itself all across time and culture. Jesus says the truth shall make you free. I don't even care about the context of that statement anymore. It's in a specific context in the scripture. And if I hold it only in that context and only think about it in that specific context of a conversation with the Pharisees, I'll miss most of what it means. Because that statement, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, is something that you can live by. You can live by whatever age and time you live. You can live by whatever your situation and culture or your status is. You can live by that. The truth will make you free. A lie will keep you in bondage. And I can tell you, probably a little bit I know about it, that if you talk to psychologists, any psychologist that knew anything at all, he will tell you, yes, that's a true statement. That's exactly what they're trying to teach you in modern psychology, in their own worldly way, is live by the truth, not a lie. But we tell ourselves lies all the time to convince us that we can do whatever we want, that what we're doing is good, and what I've done in the past is somehow good. We tell ourselves lies. We tell ourselves lies about how we care for our children, how we treat our mate, how we treat our employer. But to live a lie and to accept a lie is to be in bondage. We talked about this last week about speaking the truth from the book of Jonah. That's what else Jesus says here. We need to move, we need to move along. Uh, he, he says it in John 9. Now, something else has happened in the inter- interval between John 8 and 9. Jesus has healed a blind man. 
And he's healed this man who's been blind since birth, and the people around him know he was blind. And now he can see. He doesn't even know exactly who healed him. Because he was blind, Jesus put mud on him and said, go wash the pool of Siloam. When he went and washed, he could see. Jesus wasn't there then. So he didn't even see Jesus, heard his voice, I suppose, until later. And there's this whole long encounter with the Pharisees, uh, which is a which is a great lesson. But toward the end of this, the Pharisees rejected. They know he's been blind. His parents tell him that he's been blind. All the neighbors tell him, yes, it's the same person. And yet they refuse to believe. Because to believe it would mean they would have to accept that Christ did a miracle. And they will not accept that. One of the young people in the Bible class here, they did not ask me, why, how can people believe that the world doesn't have any meaning or nothing makes sense? Well, there's a good reason for that. That's because they don't want to do what God says. Simply, simply put, if the world has meaning and there's a God who controls the world, that means that they can't do whatever they want to do. They're responsible to God. If there's a God and the world has a meaning to it, that means that they can't live a meaningless life and be in accord with the God of the universe. They have to have a life that has meaning and is moral and right. But people don't want that, and so they've got to eliminate God to get to that. Why couldn't the Pharisees see this? Well, Jesus says a little bit later, you can't because you want to do the will of your father, the devil. That's why you can't hear what I had to say to you. But in verse 39, he says, And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Now what he means by that is, those who do not do not see are the common people like this blind man who can't see literally, but he says these are people that don't think they know everything, like you Pharisees. The ones who know that they don't know everything, he says, yeah, you'd call them blind, and I came that those people can see. And you people that say you can see and you know everything, you're going to be made blind. You're not, to, you're not going to be able to understand anything. You know, it's just amazing, even in a political sense, that our leaders in Washington and New York, they have no understanding of the common person, what the common person thinks. They think the common person in America just loves transgender ideology, just loves all the things that they do. They can't understand at all why people object to any of those things. And the interesting thing about that, as smart as they are, they don't care to find out either. Why did a man like Donald Trump get elected? Just why? Well, among many other reasons, he got elected because those smart people just refused to understand anything that he said or why even people liked him. Now, I'm not advocating for that. I'm just simply saying, politically, it was a, a mistake on their part because they refused to see. They were blind to whatever attraction was there or is still there. And it's going to cost them again, perhaps. Be that good or bad. I'm not advocating that. I'm simply pointing out. Smart people, actually smart people, would take a look and say, wow, what's going on here? What are these common people in flyover country? What do they really think? And when they send these people from the New York Times out to find out what they really think, they come back shaking their head and say, we don't have any idea what they think because they don't believe like we do. We're not doing a good enough job educating them because they disagree with us instead of trying to find out why it is. They won't find out. And these Pharisees were the same way. They didn't want to know why the common people love Jesus Christ. They didn't care. They were too blind to see that. Then some of the Pharisees heard it heard these words, they said to him, are we blind also? Oh, so you're saying we're blind. 
I love that when you're talking to people. Oh, oh, so you're saying blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I probably am saying that. Oh, so you're saying, yeah, I am saying that. So are we blind? Are you trying to say that us and our fine clothes, our rich, our wealth and our political power, you're trying to say we're blind? We're the educated ones. Jesus says to him, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see and therefore your sin remains. Well, they had to chew on that one. If you were blind, if you didn't really understand, if you didn't think you understood what you think you do, you would have no sin. You wouldn't be the kind of sinners that you are. But since you say we see, we understand everything, we're smarter than you, Jesus, your sin remains. You have no way to be saved. They refused to see that they could be lost. They would not accept the fact that they could be lost. And it had to do with the fact of doing the truth. So, so knowing that you're lost is essential to being saved. I guess I went too far, but knowing that you're lost is essential to being saved. I've been saying this for, how, I don't know how many, 40, almost for close to 50 years, stupid little saying, you can't be saved until you're lost. There's no way to be saved until you're lost. People try it all the time, especially second, third generation Christians who were raised in the church and other religions. They, 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 they oftentimes keep going to church as they grow up, but, but they've never really understood what being lost was. And until you've not understood the Bible, until you've been in the wrong churches, until you realize that you have been a sinner, down, walk down the depths of sin and bondage, sometimes it takes that Come to understand that you're lost. And when you come to understand that you're lost, now being saved means something to you. It means something to be saved. There's a lot of people in churches, second, third generations, who are pretty sure that they've never been wrong. I knew a lady who wouldn't sing the song, uh, Burns Lifted to Calvary, and I shouldn't make, shouldn't say this in a bad way, but I want you to think about the concept. The song, the song says, um, Years I spent in vanity and pride, knowing not my Lord was crucified. That's the beginning of the song, Burns, not Burns, Lifted at Calvary. Um, what's the name of that song? Years I spent, huh? Speak louder. You got it. At Calvary, yes, okay. Why do you think I talk so loud up here? Because I can't even hear myself. So anyway, uh, they, at Calvary, years I spent in vanity and pride, knowing not my Lord. She said, well, that's hard for me to sing because I didn't spend years in vanity and pride. I, I became a Christian at a very young age. Okay, I got you. That means you should be, you should be very afraid. As uh, uh, Elmer Fudd says, be very, very afraid. Because you may not know what it really means to be saved. You may have a problem of pride. You may be blind because you've always felt saved. And you may not appreciate the forgiveness that the Lord brings. Just talking about that forgiveness. You may not even appreciate or even think you need forgiveness that the Lord can bring because you've always been saved. So it's essential to understand that you've been lost or are lost. So there's also, besides truth and freedom, there's also sin and guilt. Two words that don't make any sense in modern American culture, Western culture. We went, did some lessons, I don't know, last year sometime about how we got where we are. I think that's what it's called in the, on the web. You can go look it up and 
wearejustchristians.com is from how we got where we are. It's about metaphysics and philosophy, how philosophically we came from the Middle Ages till today and why things are like they are philosophically, why the people in higher places teach your children what they do. What common, and now it's filtered down into common culture. The common music and culture and thoughts of the, of the American people are eat up with this modern thought, modernism. But two words that don't belong there in that culture is sin. Think about the last time you ever heard anybody just in the press or in the media use the word sin. When's the last time you heard them actually use it in any kind of correct or biblical way? You haven't heard them unless they're talking about, oh, it's a sinfully delicious chocolate dessert. I, I get angry about that. There's nothing sinful about desserts. It's a complete misuse of the word sin. It's disgusting. Dessert is not the sin you should be worried about. And it's not a sin in any event. But that's the only time we ever use it. Or we talk about some, we talk about sex in some way, even between married couples, as somehow being a sin. It's not a sin per se. But we just throw this word around. It doesn't have any meaning. In other words, it's like the word repent. When's the last time you heard a politician say, well, I repent of the lies I told you? I repent. You ever heard anybody say that? Repentance has no place in modern society. Boy, I'm telling you something. If repentance and sin have no place in our vocabulary as a culture, we've got some serious problems. Christianity just doesn't fit in at all. And that ought to concern you for your children and grandchildren, maybe for yourself. What about guilt? Oh, it's a guilty pleasure. What do I mean by that? Oh, once again, chocolate dessert. It's a guilty pleasure. Is there anything to be guilty of for eating chocolate for dessert? Not according to the Bible, any way that I can possibly see. We should receive all our food with thanksgiving. What the Bible would say about that is be thankful that you've got enough money to eat a dessert. Be thankful that it could be chocolate. Did you live in an age where people know how to take some beans and some uh, tree down in South America and make something like chocolate out of it? Well, it's practically a miracle in the common use of the word. And you can get it as a common person at Walmart and on any street corner you can get this stuff. What kind of world do you live in and you're calling yourself a guilty pleasure? But we have no place for guilt. Because to be guilty, you've got to be wrong. Can't be wrong because you're a modern person and therefore you can't be guilty. So if there's no sin, there's no, and the truth of the Bible is if there's no sin, there's no guilt. So if you're not a sinner, and that's true, if you're not a sinner, if you've not sinned, you're not guilty according to the Bible. Who can say that? Who could honestly say that? No. But if there's sin, then there's guilt. If there has been sin, there is guilt. Now that's the hard, cruel fact of the world that we live in that God made. And so from the very beginning of humanity, from the first two people God ever made, you and I know the story. There there was sin and there was guilt from the very first people who were ever made. And it continues to this very hour. And not because we inherit it, but because we do it. We'd rather have it be inherited. So that all of our palms are because Adam and Eve did something that, that no longer makes any sense. Of it, but they did something and so that's why I'm bad. You wish it were that way. You're a, you, you have sinned because you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
That's what's happened. That's the hard truth of the Bible that the world has never wanted to accept. So sin is not a mistake. Well, I made a mistake. Mistakes were made, we'll say. Yes, certainly is. Having an affair is not a mistake. It is a sin. Yeah, mistakes were made. Mistakes are more like not using your turn signal when you make a left turn. That could be a mistake. And even in society, we punish those kind of mistakes. But the mistake is this or that little thing. And we take something as serious as rebellion against God, directly contradicting his word, thumbing our nose at him. I I know what you say. We'll say, well, I know the Bible says that, but... And then we go, we do what we want. And we say, well, that might have been a mistake. Yes, but it's also a sin. Sin is not a disease that you catch. That's the psychological analysis today. Sin's a disease. It's a, it's a syndrome. I keep threatening to preach my sermon on sin or syndrome, and I haven't done it yet. I'll have to get that, put that on my list. Is it a sin or is it a syndrome? We have syndromes. You have disobedient child syndrome, or whatever it's called now. My mother knew how to do it, deal with that. So my grandmother, grandfather, that rebellious, disobedient, is there a, there's an acronym, everything has an acronym. There's an acronym for children that won't behave themselves and are rebellious. An acronym for it. It's a syndrome that they get into. When you, oh, never mind. Sin is not a disease. Diseases can help you sin. They can tempt you to sin. They can, diseases may result from you being in bondage to sin. You get in bondage to sin, you can get disease. You can get psychological diseases, if I'm using it in that way, from being in bondage to sin and wanting to do your own thing. You take a child that early on learns that if they act a certain way, they can get their way, and if they act a certain way, that parents will take it easy on them. Oh, you know, poor poor little Davey, you can't do that because poor little Davey will get upset. They learn from that. They learn that if they act a certain way, even a little bit off, that they can get out of being responsible and do what they want. And guess what they end up with? They end up with a psychological disease and a behavioral disease and even sometimes a criminal disease. It's all sin. We get, we'll say, and I use it in quotes because I don't believe it, we get the sin of alcoholism. How do you get there? Well, you get there by behavior. That's how you get there. And you stay there because of behavior. Not because it's now a disease. Oh, it can put you in bondage. I have no doubt about that. And I believe that. But the bondage, it's funny to me how we can say it's a disease, and yet the answer to the disease is spiritual. What's the answer to the disease of alcoholism or drug addiction? Well, the answer is counseling. You need help. You need counseling. You know, if I get malaria, they don't give me counseling for malaria. They give me a medicine because I have a disease. But I get the disease of alcoholism, they give me counseling. Only They're only proving the point I'm making. Alcoholism is a disease, it's a spiritual disease that has a spiritual cure. Because something has to happen in the spirit of man to cure the disease. It's a spiritual disease. Oh, I don't want that, I don't like that, I don't want, that makes me responsible. Yes, yes, I'm afraid it does. And you may be lost. You can argue with that. You can dislike me for it. But it won't change the fact that sin is not a disease. Sin is not a social problem. Well, you're a sinner because 
We just don't know how to treat minorities, or we don't know how to treat this per- handicapped people. Or we don't know how to treat. No, no, that's not why you're a sinner. That's not why you are a sinner. It may help you keep you in bondage. It may tempt you. It may influence you. But that's not why you are a sinner or have this problem. You and I are guilty of disobedience. That's the problem. We're guilty of disobedience. We disobey when we want to disobey. And it's always been that way for human beings. We only obey God when we agree with Him. We only obey God. Think about that for a moment. When do you obey God? Most of the time, it's you, you got a ch- if you got a child. I'll interrupt myself. If you got a child, and they only obey you when they agree with you, but when they disagree, they do what they want. Do you have an obedient child? No, you, you have a child that when they agree with you, they. You know, it's only time, if you see them, if you see that kind of child, if you see them obeying you, you will know something. They must agree with me. Because if they don't agree with you, they'll do whatever they want. They're disobedient. Now you're like that with your heavenly father. Oftentimes. You agree with him, think he's smart, you'll do what he says. If not, you'll do what you want. This is the very essence of sin and the human problem. And so, My sin and my guilt have involved me in a great conflict, whether I like it or not, or whether I know it or not. It has involved me in a great conflict in the heavens. Because, see, the Bible teaches not only are you a sinner, but it also teaches that you're you're very important in the universe. You're very important to God. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And Jesus even tells a parable that... The master, the shepherd, left all of his other sheep and went to find the one sheep who was lost. He had one sheep who was lost, and he went out on the mountain to find that sheep. Wow. That's a frightening parable. First of all, it tells me that I'm very... Every single one of us is important to God. Every single one, rich, poor, whatever it is, are important to God. And then it also tells me that Jesus is seeking me. You know, because sometimes you just rather be lost. I used to have a couple places where I grew up you know, between my home and all my uncles and aunts' homes and grandparents' homes in the neighborhood there. And it was a half acre lots and lots of trees. And my grandfather had chicken houses with little cubby holes, inaccessible places. I had a spot up on the roof of the chicken house in the backside. I climbed that tree, get up in that one little corner and sit there. Uh, hiding and no one knew, had any idea where I was for hours. I made myself lost. You can analyze that, you know, that's fine with me, but, and I'm sure there was a lot wrong, but the fact is, nobody else ever did something like that. Just wanted to kind of hide away where nobody knew where you were. You were trying to be lost. Can't lose yourself from God. We saw that with Jonah last week. You just can't get lost from God. You are lost and he's fi- trying to find you. But my sin creates this chasm. And that's why the Bible says in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's just like other people or against my own flesh and blood that I wrestle. Some people say, well, I'm not, I'm wrestling against my own flesh. Yeah, you are wrestling with you. It's not that. But we wrestled against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. When you struggle with sin and rebellion, you're on, you're involved in a great battle in the heavens between good and evil. 
between God and his enemies. You're involved in that battle. And God, your struggles in your own heart with that, in your own actions, are essential in this battle. Are you going to win? Whose side will you be on? How is it going to turn out? God's seeking his sheep. We also see this in Isaiah, the famous passage. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. You're not beyond hope. No, you might think you are beyond, but you're not really beyond hope. You're not ever hiding. The Lord's hand is not shortened, nor its ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. There's a great chasm, a battle going on. For your hands are defiled with blood. Your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. If you just read the rest of Isaiah 59, you'll be shocked. You'll be shocked at how parallel that chapter is with what you see in your world you live in, in modern society. You'll be shocked at the sins and the things he lists there in Isaiah 59 that is separated between you and your God. But sin is our choice. Sin originates in rebellion against God's will. Do you agree with God? Only when he agrees with you. I already went over that. Uh, uh, and then you see here as we close, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, Jesus says in John 8, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Why do you want to do, why do you seek to kill Jesus? Why do you seek to stifle his word in your heart? Well, the American Standard says, my word has not free course in you. The word of Christ, the words of the Bible, need to have free course in your heart. They need to be able to travel in your heart wherever they want to go. That's what a free course means. You can go wherever you want to go. The Constitution guarantees every American the right of free course in this country. We are permitted to travel wherever we want to go without restraint. Now, the government police spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to restrain us. The Constitution gives you free course in the United States as a citizen. Does the Word of God have that kind of free course in you, or do you stifle it? Do you keep it out of certain places of your life, certain places in your heart? And when you do that, you will have to kill Christ in there. So, so in this case, sin, I don't know, we, sin has consequences. We could talk about a whole sermon on that, maybe we will. But it, it, they're not imaginary consequences. Not, they're not just theological consequences. They're real consequences. But I want to close, and we might come back to this in another lesson because we're going to close today. But I want to talk about a man who was lost. He looked saved to some people, but he was actually lost. And he finally came to realize, that's Saul of Tarsus. You know him as the Apostle Paul. He says later about his, about his conversion, about his previous life, he says about that after he was saved, that the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant 1 Timothy chapter 2, with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's simply, isn't that a restatement of what Jesus said to Zacchaeus? Came in the world to save That's why he came. Paul restates it here. And he says about this that he had been a persecutor. Well, in fact, I went to the wrong slide. Uh, he says here that he enabled me, even though I formerly, verse 13 of 1 Timothy 2, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. He still saved me. Paul was willing to confess what he really was, and therefore he was able to be saved. And that's why when, when he was there, blinded, depressed, unsure of what was going to happen, there after the Lord struck him blind, Ananias came to him and said, Saul, 
Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And I want to encourage you to do that this morning. If you have not, never been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, every part of what I just said is important. Being buried with Christ in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, every part of that's important. If you've never done that, you need to do that. That's what he told him to do here. And that, that's what it means to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. We want to encourage you to do that this morning. We have everything ready for you if you're willing to do that. We can make you a Christian this morning through the power of the Word of God, and you can begin to serve. If this morning you need to repent and turn away from wrong in the bondage that you're in, let us help you as your brothers and sisters. Let us help you and pray with you and get you back on the right track. Are you ready? If you're willing, you come to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.